Welcome to Frontline Church South OKC Sermon Podcast. Each week we will have new sermon content from Sunday mornings, both video and audio options. Please visit south.frontlinechurch.com for more information. If you have any questions, need prayer, or have any other needs at all, please email hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. The scripture for today's sermon comes from 1 Corinthians 7, 10 through 16. The word of God speaks to us. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? This is God's word to us. Awesome. Hey, thanks, Stacy. Hey, good morning. It's a, a great lighthearted passage to jump back into, right? Uh, good to be with you this morning. If we've not met, my name is Andrew. I get to serve as one of our pastors. And all jokes aside, that's why we do what we do. We love to take books of the Bible and work our way through because it forces you to deal with stuff that otherwise you would never touch. And if you've been with us for a while, you know that that's like not even close to the hairiest thing that we've seen yet in the text. And there's some other things coming up that are going to be bizarre and wild and helpful. Uh, so I'm, I'm grateful to be with you in opening the Word of God together. Hey, um, I had the sense while we were singing, both in our 9 o'clock service and again today in our 11, that some of you are here and you're hearing the songs, but you really can't sing them. You're struggling to sing them. You're struggling with the words. You're watching other people respond with a lot of joy, with a lot of passion. By the way, if you struggle having joy and passion, just stand in front of Miguel right here, and you'll, you'll want to like run through the wall during worship. It just gets you so fired up. But some of you are like, I'm a million miles away from that. And I want to believe it, but I'm struggling to believe it. I'm wrestling with the faithfulness of God. And I just want to say to you, if that's you, you have a Father in heaven that doesn't want you to drop that at the door and then come in. He actually wants to meet you there. And I want to ask you to not stuff that down somewhere really deep, but I actually want you to, where you feel the lack of his faithfulness, that, that's leading to a place where he wants to encounter you with his love and encounter you with his mercy. So I don't know exactly what you're carrying with you this morning. I don't know if there's doubt and unbelief in your heart. Maybe you're not following Jesus. Uh, maybe you, you are following Jesus, but you're struggling I just want to say, like, your father sees you, he's with you, and he wants to process all that stuff that's starting to bubble up, even while we're singing. Amen? 
Amen. Okay, glad to be with you. Hey, uh, just a, a shameless plug real quick. I think in the nine o'clock I said a shameful plug. So maybe it's a Freudian slip. I don't know. Uh, so one of, one of our pastors, our worship pastor, and one of my best buddies, Will Gaines, maybe you know this, maybe you don't, has released an amazing album. Uh, it is such a good, like musically, he's one of the most gifted people I know. And uh, he's released this amazing album. On Thursday, he's having a show, uh, a concert where he's going to actually do like his whole album. And it is absolutely going to be great. I, I would love to invite you to be a part of this. Uh, my wife is going to be opening for him. I'm excited for that. Um, and, and this is just going to be a great moment to celebrate the gifting that God has given him. Hey, maybe you've got friends that are far from God. I want to invite you to be a part of this. Uh, it's going to be at Beer City Music Hall on Thursday night. One of my favorite breweries, Fairweather Friend, is right next door. It's a super cool place. So if you've got people that are far from God and are interested in Christianity but would never come to church, or maybe they're not at all, they're going to hear nothing but explicit gospel truth uh, sung that night. It's going to be really powerful. And it's not like weird. It's good. It'll be really good. So this is not like a frontline thing. This is just let's go out and support Will and support Hillary. It's going to be a really fun deal. Sound good? Okay, let me pray for us and we'll jump in. Father, thank you for the gift that it is to sit under the word of God and even hard words, uh, even corrective words we need. And I, I just, I, I feel the weight today that what people need is not my thoughts, my words. We need your heart and your word. And if there's anything that I say today that's unhelpful or lacks nuance uh, that you would want to provide, I pray that you would provide that. Let it be quickly forgotten if it's untrue. And anything that lines up with your heart, God, we pray that it would land in a way that's not just mere human words, but it would be the word of God to us. We receive your word. We want to be people of the word. We want to be shaped by your word. So come, Holy Spirit, and shape us and form us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. In October of 2021, Vogue magazine had an interview with Adele. It was about Adele's recent album that she released. And in that interview, her recent divorce came up. And I want you to hear what she had to say. I was just going through the motions and I wasn't happy. Neither of us did anything wrong. Neither of us hurt each other or anything like that. It was just, I want my son to see me really love and be loved. It's really important to me. I've been on my journey to find my true happiness ever since. <clears throat> now, I don't say that to throw Adele under the bus. I don't give you that quote to throw any sort of shame on her. But I want you to see something that's really, really important about the heart of what she's saying. Because the heart of what Adele's saying is actually giving us a really succinct, accurate vision of our current culture's understanding of marriage, isn't it? That over the last 50 to 75 years, even uh, the culture's vision of marriage has shifted dramatically from what it once was. Uh, we've not just lost a Christian vision of marriage, but we've also lost even a common grace vision of marriage. 50 to 75 years ago, marriage was seen as a lifelong contract that a man and a wife would step into together, not primarily for their own personal happiness or benefit, but so that they could grow into depth and maturity as people. That over time, they would learn how to curb some of the worst aspects about themselves and learn how to give sacrificially for the other, to learn how to defer for the other, that actually together uh, we, we care about our marriage more than my own individual pers personal happiness. And that out of that lifelong contract, 
this marriage can be a place where children are raised in a mature home so that they can be released and launched out into the world. 50 to 75 years ago, that was just the common understanding of marriage in our culture, and we have experienced a seismic shift from that, haven't we? That now today, marriage is this weird conglomeration, this weird cocktail between self-fulfillment meets romantic idealism meets consumerism. That now for us, marriage is this thing where I, I actually don't do this for you, for the other, but I do this for me and for my own personal happiness, and for my own benefit. And what culture tells us is that you need to go out there and find the one. And you'll know they're the one because they won't want to change you. They'll they'll embrace you just as you are. They won't want to edit or delete anything about your personality. The the romantic and sexual chemistry is going to be off the charts. You'll always want to be jumping into bed together. And it's ultimately going to be something that you just experience, the the love of being loved, the pursuit and, and the desire of my own personal happiness being fully released as much as I want it to be. That's what marriage is about. It's not about you, it's about me. This is what's happened in our culture. And as a result, what happens is when you wake up and you realize that that person isn't the one, or they stopped becoming the one, or you married the wrong person, or what have you, or you're not experiencing that personal level of rich happiness that you thought you were supposed to experience, then not only do you have culture's permission to get divorced, but you actually have an encouragement to do so. That the responsibility on you is to leave and divorce your spouse and pursue somebody else. And as a result, divorce has been normalized in our culture, right? Now, what's bizarre and what we're looking at today is that divorce was being normalized in the Corinthian church, but for very, very different cultural reasons. For us today, we pursue divorce because it doesn't meet my standards or my personal happiness, generally speaking. But in the Corinthian church, what was happening is that people were pursuing divorce for holiness reasons. I know that that seems weird, but it's true. They were pursuing divorce for holiness reasons. One of the ideologies that had gripped the Corinthian church was known as spiritual asceticism. Spiritual asceticism is where uh, you don't just reject bad things, but even good things you reject and see them as inherently bad because you're trying to transcend into the spiritualized world where you're not having any sort of earthly attachments like marriage or sex. So you reject those earthly attachments so that you can become a spiritually mature person. That ethos had gripped the Corinthian church. So what you had was several different people pursuing divorce for different reasons. Some Christians were pursuing divorce in order to be freed from earthly commitments so that they could follow Jesus wholeheartedly. How can I follow Jesus if I have this earthly attachment in my marriage? I should leave my wife or husband so that I can become free of attachments and follow Jesus. Others were pursuing divorce because they thought that uh, they had become Christians, but their spouse had not yet become a Christian. Their spouse wasn't converted. And they were thinking, oh my gosh, like if I'm married to an unbeliever, then that's going to have a negative impact on my life. And I won't be able to follow Jesus in the ways that I'm supposed to. So I'm going to leave my unbelieving spouse because, man, it's really going to damage my character to even be with them and to be married with them and have that proximity. So those people were pursuing divorce and still others were pursuing divorce because they thought sex was so inherently evil, even in the context of marriage, that they're like, I'm going to leave my wife so that, or my husband so that I'm not even tempted to have sex with them. So that way I can just engage a lifestyle of celibacy totally and not have marriage as a constant temptation. 
So this is what Paul is dealing with. Now think about it. Two very different cultures, two very different motivations, wildly different in every way, separated by 2,000 years, and yet the result and the outcome was the exact same. Divorce was being normalized, and marriages were breaking apart. And here's why I love the Bible. I love the Bible because the Bible is written to a very different culture, a very different context, in different languages than you and I speak, and yet it's profoundly relevant to every single thing that we face today. But Paul is saying something to the Corinthians that they needed to hear in one way, and we're going to receive the word of God today, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, and it's going to be a corrective for us in a very different way. Isn't that amazing? Now, uh, here's the reality. You need some context here uh, because we stopped our series and pressed pause on this in November, and I can't remember what I had for breakfast two days ago. And so in light of that, let's just give you the 30-second version of here's what this letter's all about. You ready? 30 seconds, and I'll be done. Uh, a few years before Paul wrote this letter, he planted this church in the very progressive, very Greco-Roman uh, port city called Corinth. And he planted this church, and things were going great, but then shortly after he planted, a couple of years in, things started to get weird. The Corinthian Christians started to reject aspects of their unique identity as Christ followers in the kingdom of God and started to absorb and take on and synchronize with various aspects of Corinthian culture. In other words, they stopped looking like Christ and they started to look more like Corinth in every way. And so Paul is dealing with this, and he's heard about this, and he's writing letters back and forth, and a little bit of confusing stuff here is that this is not the first interaction that Paul has had with the church at Corinth. He's written them another letter, and they've responded, and so what is 1 Corinthians in your Bible is actually 2 Corinthians, and what is 2 Corinthians is actually 4 Corinthians. I know it's super confusing, but that's the way it works. So Paul's interacting with the Corinthian Christians through these letters, and in chapter 7, there's a shift in the letter. In chapter 7, Paul is now dealing with very specific things that this church has asked Paul about or really dumb stuff that they've said in their letter that Paul wants to address. That's what we're dealing with. So if you were with us when we pressed pause right in chapter 7, uh, here's what we, we, we saw, that Paul was offering the Corinthian Christians a positive sex ethic in the context of marriage between a husband and a wife. He had to tell this church, hey, sex is a gift, but it's a gift from God to be received with the parameters that God has put in place, which is covenantal marriage between a man and a woman. So if you're married, have sex. That's kind of a sex-positive message that Paul had to give in the first part of chapter 7. Today, what he's going to do is address the issues of divorce. Next week, what we're going to look at in chapter 7 is Paul essentially fighting for you and I to embrace the calling and the life that God has assigned for us, to learn how to fight for contentment and devotion to Jesus wherever you find yourself. And in two weeks, we're going to look at Paul's theology, really the Bible's theology of the gift of singleness. I know some of you in the room that are single, you're like, you're not talking to us. I promise we will. We're going to have a whole sermon where we talk about Paul's theology of the gift of singleness. But for, for today, I want you to see verse 17 as the beating heart of this chapter. This is the climax. This is the, what, what tethers everything together. This is what Paul is trying to fight for, for you and for me, regardless of where you find yourself. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Did you notice that God has 
assigned for you a life. You are who you are. You are where you are. You are in the relationships that you are because you've been assigned by the living God. But it's not just that. He's called you to himself. So the life that he's assigned for you is now meant to be conformed and submitted to his calling to God himself. This is what Paul is trying to fight for, whether you're married or whether you find yourself currently single. So in light of that, what what he's going to do today is he's going to give us three different scenarios about divorce that these Corinthian Christians had questions about and that often come up in our own questions today. You ready? Three scenarios, 10 through 18. That's where we're going to go. Okay, I have no confidence that you're ready. Are you guys ready? We good? Yeah, just blank stares across the room. Here we go. Here's the first scenario. I'm a Christian, and so is my spouse. What do I do? Paul wants to say, stay married. Look at verse 10. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Now, what's interesting here is Paul is pulling directly from the teachings of Jesus himself, which is why he says, here's what I'm saying, parentheses, not I, but the Lord, because he's saying that the Lord Jesus himself has specifically addressed this particular issue. He has specifically said about marriage that people who are married, Christians who are married, should fight to stay married, and he's actually given virtually no wiggle room for divorce. He's calling for them into fidelity and faithfulness in the context of marriage. And here's what's crazy. Both for that culture then and for our culture today, the teachings of Jesus are radically countercultural in his understanding of marriage. Even the disciples have to pull Jesus off to the side after he talks about marriage and basically gives them no wiggle room for divorce. And they're like, if such is the case with a man and his wife, then it's better to not marry. And Jesus is like, yeah, I know what I'm saying is hard to hear, but it's what I'm saying. So he is intentionally, regularly offering his heart, saying, those who God has joined together, let no man or woman separate. This is his heart about marriage. Therefore, listen, if you're a follower of Jesus and you're married, both Paul and Jesus and the teaching of all of the New Testament are telling you, stay married. Now, that leads to some obvious questions. It's sort of like a a can of worms that gets opened and some things that we need to wrestle through. Like, what if I disobey and I get a divorce? Or what if I didn't know that that was what the New Testament said and I've gotten a divorce? Or what if a divorce has happened to me, right, for various reasons? Well, the thrust of every text in the New Testament that deals with with divorce is urging you not to do it. It's pleading with you to fight for fidelity, to fight for faithfulness, to stay, to have staying power in your marriage. But if you do get divorced for whatever reason, then scripture is now calling you to live a life of singleness. Now that raises a new set of questions, right? Like, well, what if I don't like being single? And I want to say to you, if that's you, often that's happening in our culture because we tend to have a a very negative view of singleness, especially in the church, and we shouldn't. And we're going to get to that in two weeks. But often we have an, an, an allergic reaction to singleness when actually scripture would call us to a higher way to see singleness as a profoundly beautiful gift to be embraced, not rejected, right? So if you don't like singleness, maybe you need to wrestle with Scripture's theology of singleness. Some of you then ask the question, but 
Should I get remarried? And, and, and what Paul ideally would say to you, if you're a follower of Jesus and you're married to a follower of Jesus and there's been a divorce, ideally, if you get married again, it needs to be your spouse that you've divorced. You need to get reconciled back to your spouse. So some of you are asking the question, well, I've been divorced, should I get remarried? And, and I want to give you the, the, the answer, non-answer, maybe, maybe not. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know your scenario. I don't know your situation. That actually what I would encourage you to do is take a lot of time. I heard Andrew Wilson say, when in doubt, stay single, because that's actually the pull that Paul is pulling us towards is singleness. So when in doubt, stay single. But if you're really desiring to be married and you're unsure of your, your circumstances and situations, can I just offer would you please reach out to your pastors? Let them sit with you with the word of God and with your situation, and we will wrestle with you. Sometimes remarriage is on the table, and sometimes remarriage is not. We can help with that. We can try to fight and wrestle together with the word of God and figure out which is which in your life. This is what Paul would say. And then that leads to maybe the most important question that some of us are wrestling with in the room, which is, is divorce ever biblically permissible? And I just want to pause here and say this, that there are so many stories in the room. There are so many different scenarios and things in the room. Some of you are in the middle of going through a divorce, and it's ripping your heart out. It's painful. It's heartbreaking. Others of you, this very sermon, it's almost like PTSD. It's like bringing back some, some pain and stuff because you've experienced the pain of divorce in your own life. And I just want you to hear my words. I want you to hear my words that more than anything, what you need to hear is what Paul said to this church in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. Your Father in heaven is saying to you, grace and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. That divorce is not the unpardonable sin. It's not the scarlet red letter. It's not the thing that you can't ever recover from. And whatever your story, whether you were the victim or you are the one who's caused the pain and caused the heartache, God wants to meet you in that place. He's for you, not against you. He's not trying to push you out or shame you. Whatever your story is, we love you, we are with you, and we want to help you. So is divorce ever biblically permissible? Well, I don't have time to get into all the nuances and the depths of this answer. We preached a whole sermon about this in our Gospel of Mark series. You can find this on our website on October 31st of 2021. But suffice it to say that we think that there are at least three biblical reasons where a marriage covenant can be so shattered by sin that divorce would be permissible but never required. Permissible but never required. Both myself and the pastors of Frontline Church believe that the Bible provides three reasons for divorce, three permissible reasons. The first is in instances of adultery. See Matthew 5.32 and Matthew 19 verse 9 for Jesus' teaching about how adultery can so shatter a marriage where divorce is permissible. It's not required, but it's permissible. We would also mention the second one, abandonment. We're going to see this here in just a minute. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15, is a verse about abandonment where one person is abandoned by their spouse, and we would say that divorce is permissible in situations of abandonment. Then the third one that we would mention is abuse. And abuse follows the same logic as abandonment because abuse is an extreme version of abandonment where there's both the absence of support and care and the presence of violence and evil. And I just want to say, if you're married and you're in the room and you're in an abusive relationship, you're, you are in an abusive relationship, you need to do two things, and two things in this order. You need to call the police 
and you need to call your pastors. You need to call the police and you need to call your pastors. Listen, it's never right. It's never God's heart for you to stay inside of something where evil is being contained and hidden and covered over. It's it's never okay. His heart for you is to actually see that evil brought to the light. And, and, And I'll tell you this, we're imperfect as pastors, but this is not the first time that we will see this and it's not the last time that we will see this. And you have my word, we will walk with you. We will care for you. We will get you help. So if that's you, call the police, call your pastors. You shouldn't live in that type of way. This is what God is inviting you out of and into freedom. But here's the summary. With all those caveats, I don't want you to miss the heart of what Paul's saying here. And actually, I think that Andrew Nacelli sums up the heart of what Paul and the rest of Scripture would say about this issue well. He says, the main thing that Jesus wants to say about divorce is this. Don't do it. It's not God's intention for marriage. If all you hear are the reasons a marriage covenant might be broken, it's like learning to fly by practicing your crash landings or training for battle by practicing your retreats. Whatever exception there might be, the main thing is that marriage is supposed to be permanent. Christians, you're married, stay married. Second thing I want you to see, second scenario, I'm a Christian, but my spouse isn't. What do I do? Well, Paul would say, stay married. Stay married. Look at verse 12. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, we'll get to that comment in just a minute, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Now, this is a really interesting comment that Paul's make at the start of the passage here. He says, you know, early on, uh, I'm saying this, not I, but the Lord. And then now he's saying, I'm saying this, not the Lord, but I. And so some people have taken this to be like, oh, Paul's just giving us his logical, wise opinion that we can take or leave. You don't have to do it. It's like just Paul saying, here's what I would do if I were in your shoes. And I don't want you to read it that way. I actually think that's a really unhelpful, bad way to interpret this verse. Here's what Paul is saying. Remember, Paul is called by the risen Jesus himself. He's appointed as an apostle. He's given authority to speak to churches on behalf of Jesus himself on a whole host of issues that Jesus himself never directly addressed, as in this scenario where you've got one person who's married, but their spouse isn't married, and Paul is dealing with these sticky pastoral scenarios, and he's not saying, this is my opinion, take it or leave it. He's saying, as an apostle, Jesus never specifically addressed this, but as an apostle, this is the heart of God for you. This is what you should do, right? So this is not a take it or leave it thing. This is an authoritative binding word in scripture on your life and on my life. And notice what he says. It's fascinating. He says that if you find yourself married to an unbeliever, that your spouse is actually made holy and your kids are made holy because of you. Now, that's not salvation through marriage. It's not like your spouse suddenly becomes a Christian because you're a Christian or your kids are Christians because you're a Christian. That's not the way that uh, conversion to Christianity works. But what he is saying is that if you find yourself married to an unbeliever, You are a conduit of the grace, love, and mercy of God to your spouse and to your kids. That the very presence of Jesus himself is with you in your marriage in a way that it wouldn't be 
if you weren't a Christian. That actually your heart and your presence and the way that you follow Jesus and the way that you sacrifice for the good of others, the ethic that you live under, the kingdom ethic that you follow in the teachings of Jesus, it's actually providing a source of blessing and flourishing and benefit for your unbelieving spouse. And I just want to say, if you are in the room, and there's several of you that I know that I've walked with, some of you I don't know your stories, I am so proud of you as your pastor for the ways that you walk and live and follow Jesus in the middle of a marriage where your spouse isn't a Christian. You are doing profoundly good work. And I just want to say as one of your pastors, like whatever you need from us, you have it. Whatever you need from us, you have it. Tap us in. We are in your corner. You're not alone. I can't imagine. I would imagine that you show up on a Sunday and you have two different voices. One voice is looking around at all the Christian marriages and you're grateful and you're happy. And the other voice might be like, man, I wish that were me. And I just want to say like, God sees you. You matter. What you're doing is big and important and we have your back. Keep at it. Keep following Jesus. Keep loving them the way that Jesus has loved you, something profound might happen in their heart as a result of that. Now, this is not a pass to marry an unbeliever. Paul's not saying like, hey, go missionary date, go find someone who isn't a Christian, marry them, and maybe they'll become a Christian. In fact, he says explicitly in the next couple of verses that we have no guarantees that that would happen. What he's saying is this. He's saying, if you have been married and then one of you became a Christian, but the other spouse has not yet converted to Christianity, continue to stay in the marriage if they want to stay in the marriage, right? That leads to the final scenario that Paul addresses. I'm a Christian, my spouse isn't, and wants to pursue a divorce. What do I do? Paul would say, let it be. Let it be. Look at what he says in verse 15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. You see that? Like the believer has the responsibility to stay, but if the unbelieving partner wants to separate, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. And I love this line, even though it seems discouraging. This line is profoundly encouraging. He says, for how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Friends, if you're married to someone who isn't a Christian and they want to leave you or they have left you, Paul here is actually doing something profoundly freeing. He's saying, hey, you're not a slave anymore and you are not a savior. You're not in control. Like God has to move on their heart. So you can like let it be. You can actually walk in freedom. You don't have to have your head held low that you failed and you weren't able to do all the things to see them come to know Jesus. No, you're, you're free. You've done your part. You've done your best. If they want to leave, you can't force them to conform to the ways of Jesus. You're only responsible for yourself and how you follow Jesus. Amen? So friends, this brings up a lot of questions, a lot of scenarios. There's thoughts going through some of your heads. There's fears. There's concerns. And I just want to say, take a deep breath. We're here for you. We can talk through this. If this raises questions, tap your pastors in, and we will walk with you wherever you find yourself in. But here's what I want to do. Sermon is essentially over, all right? Sermon over, but this is like a free few minutes that I want to just give you, because can we just be honest for a minute and say that all of the teachings of Jesus about marriage, divorce, sex, and singleness are incredibly hard to swallow. Amen? They are. More than you just acted like, they are really hard. If you are going to be a Christian in 2023, 
than what the world says about marriage, divorce, sex, and singleness is going to fly in the face of what Jesus is going to say about it. And here's the thing that you've got to grapple with, that you and I are not neutral people, and our world is not a neutral world. Content is not neutral content, that we actually live in a world where Paul is going to say is ordered and governed, and in many ways, there's hidden forces of spiritual darkness that are energizing forces and empowering forces in our world that are selling worldviews, ideologies, perspectives, visions of the good life that are all the time shaping you into who you are becoming, constantly. And you and I are spiritual beings And by the way, spiritual formation isn't just something that Christians do. Spiritual formation happens 24-7. The social media that you intake, the shows that you watch, the stories that you surround yourself in, the things that you are running towards, the ads in the paper, whatever it is, the ads in the paper. What am I, like 87 years old? The ads in the paper, when you wake up and brew your coffee, uh, like all the stuff in our world is shaping and forming you to love something to be someone. And this is really challenging because what culture says about marriage, love, self, and God are very, very, very wrong. Let me just give you a couple of things that our culture is going to say about marriage, love, self, and God. Marriage is a combination of self-fulfillment, romantic idealism, and consumerism. Do your very best, culture says, to find the one. If you realize that you aren't married to the one, or if they no longer are the one, or you realize that you've married the wrong person, you owe it to yourself, and you even owe it to your kids to get out of that marriage and start over. The very goal, after all, culture says, the very purpose of marriage is for you. It's for your personal fulfillment and happiness. Love in our culture, love is a feeling. It's something that happens to us. It's not something that we cultivate. You can fall in love with someone and you can fall out of love, but either way, you are bound to act according to your love. If you love someone, that's all that matters. Love is love. Therefore, to not act accordingly and to pursue who you love could actually be harmful for your well-being. That's what culture says. Self in culture. We are ultimately only accountable to ourselves, our culture says, that we self-create and we self-author. And if anyone were to restrict ourself, if any, anyone is going to be an authority over us, then it's inherently oppressive and destructive to our well-being. And actually being authentic to your true self, which is something inside of you, is more important than anything else, even faithfulness to a spouse. That you actually should ditch faithfulness if it means pursuing your true self and being authentic. God and culture Uh, sociologist Christian Smith did a phenomenal job defining how our current society thinks of God and the West. He called it moralistic therapeutic deism. Just listen to how he describes this. I'm going to read the statements that make up moralistic therapeutic deism. Number one, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life. Number two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. Do you remember recently when DeMar Hamlin fell over in that tragic, terrifying game 
and everybody on the, on the uh, media outlets were like, pray, pray, everyone stop what you're doing, pray. Doesn't matter who you pray to, just everyone pray, right? This is moralistic therapeutic theism. And then finally, number five, good people go to heaven when they die. God's out there. He's somewhere out there. He doesn't need to be involved in our life unless we have a tragedy or an emergency. Then we'll tap him in. Otherwise, you do you. I'll do me. Let's just try to live our lives. One day we'll all go to heaven when we die. Does that explain what most people in Oklahoma believe? Yeah, pretty, pretty well does. Now, here's what's crazy. The Bible's teaching on marriage, on love, on self, and on God is just wildly different. It flies in the face of what culture says. Here's what Here's marriage in Christ. I want you to think about taking your life and submitting all of it to Jesus and what that does. Marriage in Christ is ultimately created as a picture or an icon of Jesus' love for his bride, the church. That actually, it's not, uh, it's not something that produces personal fulfillment. That's not why God made it. God made it as a gift to point to his love for us. And then as a result, his love for us, his unconditional, self-sacrificial, self-giving love fuels and shapes how I love in my marriage, that it actually changes the way that I relate. Marriage is now a gift from God, but it's, a, it's not a permanent gift. It's a temporary gift that when Jesus returns to make all things new, that gift, that icon, that picture will give way to the reality of what it has always pointed to. What this means is that marriage in Christ is about husbands being formed over time into men who resemble Jesus and his self-giving, sacrificial, covenantal love for his bride. It's about women in marriage, wives in marriage, being formed over time into women who receive and joyfully submit to and follow Jesus. Marriage is about kids being raised by both a mom and a dad who function as image bearers of God and cultivate discipleship to Jesus in the home so that they can be launched out and released into the world. That's marriage in Christ. Love in Christ. Friends, love is not what you and I feel. Love is not a feeling that you fall into or out of. Love is not something that cannot be cultivated. Love is revealed by Jesus, who ultimately loves by doing something, by sacrificing his life, by giving himself over. Love is defined by his sacrificial self-giving of his body on a cross so that we could be forgiven. And ultimately, that sacrifice, that loving commitment, that devotion, that covenant that God has made for us in Christ fuels the way that we think about covenant. I love the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He says, it is not your love that sustains the marriage, but from now on, the marriage that sustains your love. Do you see the difference? Culture says, you stay married as long as you stay in love. And then the second you're out of love, you get out of marriage. No, th this is flipped on its head within Christianity. You stay married because you're married. And actually, the marriage fuels the love that you have, right? The, the, the covenant you made is how you cultivate. Love can be grown and cultivated and increased over time by the actions that you do. Self in Christ. Friends, we were not created to be autonomous individuals that get to be our own gods. In fact, any attempt at self-authoring and autonomy from God is why we got into this mess in the first place. We were created by God for God. And the irony of Christianity is that it's only when we deny ourselves, when we take up our cross, and when we follow after Jesus that we find our truest self. That you don't become a self fully until your self finds itself in Jesus Christ. Here's the irony. We get to truly be authentic when we are true, not to ourselves, but to him and his ways. 
We get to have a unique identity only when our truest identity is found in him, not in what culture says identity is found in. We get to truly be free only when we surrender and submit to Jesus. We become a true self when he is our Lord, not we as our Lord. When we find ultimate value, it's not because we're finding something internally. It's because someone, namely Jesus, from outside of us, saw us in our need, said that we mattered, left heaven, came to this earth, and shed his blood and had his body broken to buy us back. That's how much you you are valued. That's your truest self, that you're loved by this Jesus. And God in Christ, he's not just this, this floating deity somewhere way out there that when you know, bad things happen, we, we pray to him. No, no, no. God is perfectly revealed in Jesus who left heaven to find us, to forgive us, to live the life that we couldn't live, to break into our broken world, to find the darkness and bring light to it so that you and I could be redeemed and forgiven and brought into a family, into a kingdom that can't be taken away and released into a mission that actually matters. Friends, if you want to find yourself and love and marriage and singleness and all the things that value it, you can only find it when you do it the way that God has designed for you and I to do it. This is the good news of Christianity. This is Paul's point, and I'm, I'm literally going to close with this. I promise. I'll close with this. Chapter 7, verse 17, this is the point. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Would you stand with me?